what's your lounge drink of choice? Uh, like mine, I always do like a French 75. That's a good one. I do uh, a Negroni, but after having Spagliato. a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> might, yeah be, might be done for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's not a great drink to start off with when you're unexpectedly going to be there for like half a day. But normally, if you're just there for like an hour or two, totally safe. <laughs> Welcome to Takeoff, a podcast by 10X Travel. Today on the show, you've got myself, Bryce. I'm joined by Emily, Matt, and Travis, and we'll be coming to you regularly to chat points and miles and how to travel for nearly free. Last episode, we talked through the intricacies of redeeming points and miles and how it's one of the most complicated parts of this hobby. If things weren't complicated enough, today we're going to get into some more advanced strategies. Don't worry, they aren't too difficult but it is easier to explain the advanced tactics after you already have an understanding of the basics. But before we jump into that, I want to ask, how's everyone doing today? Excellent. The countdown clock is on for our staff Euro trip. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yes. What, 48 <laughs> yep. hours or so? Yeah, I leave in 48 hours. What are you There's flying one, again? Polaris? Uh, Polaris? Polaris, yeah. Round trip. Enjoy. Got an eight-hour layover in Newark, so expect... That was booked intentionally to take some good advantage of the Polaris lounge. Nice. I, I feel like eight hours, like even in a really nice lounge, eight hours is still a long time. No, it is. I think we're going to sneak out. My cousin lives in Hoboken. So I think we're going to like venture out for like two or three hours and hang out with her and then come back. So yeah, I usually feel like after like three to four hours, like I'm, I'm done. Yep. Can confirm after spending seven hours in a lounge last weekend that it was too long. <laughs> Especially when you didn't plan on doing that. Yeah. You spent that in 15 yeah. minute increments as your flight got delayed more and more, yeah. right? So, yeah. Yeah. Good there was some, some drama, though. Someone was upset about the, the drink policy in the Centurion Lounge. Oh, they get cut off. They didn't get cut off, but I guess. Like they only serve you one drink at a time. So if you're trying to go up and get a drink for like you and your partner. So this guy came up and like got a drink for his wife and then came back up like five minutes later to get his drink. And apparently there's also a hidden rule where you can't get more than one drink every 20 minutes. So they wouldn't give him a second drink. Weird. Uh, a, a, yeah. bank, a bank-owned lounge that has a velocity rule at play here. <laughs> Two drinks in every 30 minutes or whatever it is. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've had them say stuff like that before, but then I just like point to my wife and she waves. Or at least at the prison cell that's the Centurion in Houston now. Uh, <laughs> like they've got staff walking around that'll take your drink orders. So, Oh, that's nice. I always have these moments where I just question everything about my life when I approach the bar to Centurion Lounge and I try to order like a cocktail or like liquor before the time that they start serving it. And then they have to remind you like, sir, like we don't serve liquor until like 10 a.m. And then you have to like question, am I the type of person that orders like liquor before 10 a.m.? Yes. So, sir, so it's 6.30 in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> What's your lounge drink of choice? Uh, like mine, I always do like a French 75. That's a good one. I do uh, a Negroni, but after having Spagliano. a few of those, yeah, <laughs> might yeah, be might be done for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's not a great drink to start off with when you're unexpectedly going to be there for like half a day. But normally, if you're just there for like an hour or two, totally safe. <laughs> I'm simple. I'm a big bourbon fan, so depending on what they have, I might just get a bourbon neat or maybe like an old fashioned or something. Or if I'm not feeling bourbon, I'll get like a, a tequila with lime juice or something. Same boat, bourbon and ginger ale for me. Or you know, sometimes all sorts of different things. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we talked about advanced strategies for getting more drinks while at the lounge. But now let's pivot and let's talk about advanced strategies to get the most out of your points and miles when booking trips, generally just using them. Card denials. And this is one where we get into a little bit of psychology to put it bluntly, at some point in the points and miles hobby, you're going to get denied for a credit card. The sooner you kind of accept that, the better. And knowing that that's a part of this game. It's not necessarily a bad thing. And we do have a strategy to deal with denials. First thing to say, though, I feel like most people take a credit card denial personally. It's very rare that someone has kind of a non-emotional response in my experience. Like, oh, yeah, I applied. I got denied. Like, I totally get it. It's usually like, oh. What? Like denied me? My credit is great. My income. Why is am high. I not How good enough you? for you? Yes. Yeah. And then and then I love when people kind of like take uh, some sort of like retribution against a bank. Like, yeah, well, 
I got denied by bank A. So I immediately went and applied for a card with bank B. That'll show them, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. as we often say at 10 Travel, don't feel emotions toward banks that don't have emotions toward you, right? Don't take it personally. It's just a part of the, the, the hobby. And, and the big thing to know is that denials are not always uh, based on your credit score or income or like any other part of your financial life. I think most people get really bent out of shape because they assume that this is some sort of critique of, hey, you're, like your finances aren't good enough for this card. But that's not the case. A lot of denials are for reasons unrelated to finance, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But first, you should know that, you know, it's part of the game. Expect it. I guess here's how we're going to show it. it. It's part of the game. How many of you here on the podcast have been denied for a credit card before? Me. Woo-hoo. Yep. Just kidding. I, well, have. I was like, Travis, are you serious? Okay. I was just yeah. denied last week. Ooh, there fresh. we go. Whoa. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah. Uh, it's not, get it out. Uh, We're going to have a it's therapy funny, session here. Because <laughs> I, I, I did literally get denied and then was like, eh, I was thinking about this other card anyway. So I moved on and applied for the other card from the other bank and got approved. Boom. Revenge. Was that a retribution application? Were you a one hundred percent not? Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I didn't know which one I really wanted, and so when I got denied for one, I was like, eh, "Might as well just try for the other." That worked out well. Awesome, <laughs> Matt, Emily. Any recent denials that you want to talk about publicly? <laughs> I haven't had any recently. I also haven't been applying for many cards recently. No particular reason, but yeah, it's probably been maybe every year since I've gotten a denial. Yeah. Nice. I haven't been denied recently, but I haven't tried because Capital One was the first denial that I got. And I just think like they're not interested in having me as a customer. And that's how it's going to be. <laughs> you know, it's funny because it was Capital One who denied me last week. Ooh. See? Wow. Today's Neither episode not enough. sponsored by Capital One. Wow. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but you know the 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 denials like i wanted a city premier card for a long time and i think i got denied like four times before they finally approved me for it you just got to keep knocking <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes it does take a handful of uh attempts there but anyway banks deny credit card applications for a lot of different reasons and again many of them are unrelated to your credit or your finances common reasons we see people get denied for credit cards. One of the biggest ones is just too many requests for credit or accounts with us. Like, hey, too much, too fast, really. It means that you're moving too quickly with one bank or even from one bank to the next. And that just means slow down a little bit. You might need to take a one, two month break, possibly even longer, just to let things cool off a little bit. Another common reason we see for denial is uh, insufficient credit history. A lot of people will find the points and miles hobby having never had a credit card before in their own name. Like, oh, cool, this looks like fun. I'm going to go for some of these super premium cards right off the bat. And they get that denied for insufficient credit history. You'll find that uh, many times the, the the premium credit cards in the travel space, they generally don't want to be your first ever credit card. So it's common that you will get declined for those if you try to start there. Sometimes you get declined for a past delinquency. This will be some sort of issue that you've had with the bank in the past. Maybe you had a, a delinquent credit card in college or a, a loan go bad or anything like that. Banks can have long memories when it comes to that sort of thing. So oftentimes when you see that, you'll want to wait before trying another card with that bank again. And that is just three of dozens of reasons that we can see you can possibly decline. Sometimes it's really ticky-tack stuff. It's, hey, we couldn't verify your address. We couldn't prove who you are through public records. It, It can just be very, very seemingly minor things that cause a card denial. So again, don't take it personally. Don't assume it's an indictment of your financial life. One of the common things that we've seen recently on like insufficient credit history is people being what I I guess you could call being like too responsible with their credit where they're going in and like paying their credit card off every single week. And what what's happening is when your statement closes and the bank reports that to the credit bureaus, it comes up as if you haven't used your credit at all. People like make this mistake because they think once the statement closes, I'm charged interest. And that's not actually how it works. Once your statement closes, any unpaid balance by the next statement date is when you're charged interest. So the way around that is to let your statement close with a balance as long as there's zero statement balance. Let it close with a balance and then pay it off so that way on your credit report, it shows that you are actually using it. This has really been like an increasing reason we've seen people being denied recently. And they're like, I pay my credit card off every week. And it's like, cool, just slow down on that and pay it off after the statement closes. You still won't be charged in the interest and it will help your credit profile. 
it seems so backwards because that feels like you're doing a good thing, but in actuality, it is actually kind of harming you, even though you feel like you're doing you know, something positive for you. Yeah. I feel like yeah. that could be said for most credit mistakes that we encounter. Like you feel intuitively like you're doing a good thing, not helping your credit score. But yeah, that situation that Travis just mentioned, we see that dozens of times a week. Yeah. Like a good way to go about it too is you can actually like earn money on the money that you were going to pay your credit card off weekly, like put it in a high yield savings account, keep it there for a month, and then use that to pay it off when your statement is due and you will have earned like, I don't know. 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> this, this is the new strategy for millennials to uh, be able to afford their Starbucks coffee. Yeah. yeah. And the avocado toast. Of course. And avocado toast. Yes. Maybe a house at some point. Who knows if we cut out all our luxuries? Um, <laughs> that was fun. Anyway, I guess to quickly close the loop on that, it, it, it sounds kind of complicated to explain this via podcast, via voice only. If you are one of these people who pay off your credit card like more than once a month, like regularly, please go to our free course right now. Check out the credit mistakes section because as as Matt mentioned and put it so eloquently, it feels like you're doing the right thing and like it's a financially responsible thing to do, but you might be harming your credit and it's a tough pill to swallow when many people realize that, but give that a look. It'll get you on the right track. It's an easy problem to fix if you get ahead of it. And one important thing I think too is it may be harming your credit in a way that you won't see reflected in your score. But then when you go to apply, you'll get denied for reasons like this. So it's not easily discoverable if you are doing that because it's not like a credit score criteria. Bingo. Yeah, the go-to response when we introduce this concept to anyone is, yeah, okay, I kind of don't believe you, but my credit score is a 795 anyway, so it's going to be fine. And then two months later, decline for a card for insufficient credit history. And of course, never taken well. And, ah, you know, what's going on? I've been using credit cards for years. That's what that mistake typically looks like. So when you get declined for a card, of course, you could just sit there and take it. Like, oh, that's a bummer. Got declined. Or you could use an advanced strategy called a reconsideration call. Also shortened to recon call. Recon call is when you call the bank and you ask them to reconsider their credit decision. It's kind of like an appeal of sorts. The first step is to find the best number to call. Our advice is to just Google it. Like pick the bank name, you know, X bank reconsideration number, because these things do change from time to time. But the number typically pops up right near the top. Call the number, ask to speak to someone about reconsidering the decision of your card application. This is when they're generally going to transfer you to a credit analyst who's going to help you, kind of walk you through the application. The analyst will generally verify some of your basic information, make sure it's actually you that's calling. And now is your time to shine. This is where it really becomes almost like a sales call of sorts. Tell them why you think they should reconsider the call. Give them some good, compelling reasons why you should have this card. Now, let me first say, the reason, the first reason should never be, I just want the sign-up bonus. Don't position yourself in a way that makes you look like you're going to be a bad customer to the bank because the truth is you're not going to be a bad customer to the bank. Aim to show them why you want to take advantage of the benefits of the card. Show that you're educated on the product, why you want it. You know, Talk about how it kind of fits into your financial life. And I would encourage you to reference the course here because we actually have like full-on scripts that you can use for different denials, reasons, like comebacks that you might encounter, questions that you're going to be answered, just to kind of help you present yourself. After you make the case, uh, it'll take a few moments to reconsider your application. A lot of times they'll put you on hold for a while. If the answer is yes, we decided to approve you, then congrats. You just did a successful recon call. It's one of the scariest kind of first uh, things that people do in the points and miles hobby. But if it's not an immediate yes, they might still want to review it. Sometimes you won't get an answer at all. Say, hey, Matt, Travis, Emily, thanks for calling in for reconsideration. We hear you. We're going to look at this again and we will get back in touch. Totally fine. Sometimes it's a no. If that happens, the best move is to just politely end the call and do what we call hookah, which is an acronym for hang up, call again. Encourage you to do this immediately. Don't go to the Facebook group and post, hey, how long should it be? Don't email any of us and say, how long should I wait? Here's your answer. Immediately. And I mean like literally immediately in a matter of seconds. Call right back. Repeat the process. We encourage you to do it a minimum of three times before you fully give up. We've seen some people go seven, eight, nine calls before ultimately getting an approval. Approval is not guaranteed. Please don't anticipate, okay, well, if I call 25, 30, 40 times, they have to say yes eventually. No, they don't have to. But the answer you get the first time around is often not the final answer. The most important thing when doing recon calls is just be polite and courteous to everyone you speak of, regardless of the outcome. Most of the time, the person that you're talking to doesn't have the ultimate decision. So if your card is declined, this is not a time to 
you know, be unprofessional or rude to someone who probably didn't have anything to do with the decision. Be polite, do the three times before fully giving up, and just know that this is one of those areas of this hobby that's quite intimidating the first time you do it, but then after that, it feels just like any other customer service call. So I'm assuming that everyone here on the call has done a recon call before. Is that right? Not of heads? Yep. Okay. Yep. How have they gone? Have most of them been successful? You know, tell me about your most recent experience at recon. I haven't actually called recon in a while because I haven't been applying for as many cards as I used to. But what I found like happened to me a lot when I was younger and didn't own a home, I moved a lot more. And almost every time I would move, I would get denied. And it was just, oh, we just wanted to verify your new address. You know, something simple like that. I think I did one maybe a few months ago last year at some point. Uh, it was for one of like the Chase Inc. business cards. They called. I had to ask them to move some credit around. Uh, and that was pretty much that. They didn't really need any other information. So that one was pretty painless as far as recon calls go. Yeah, that's a that's like a really good point too, is sometimes like you get denied because the bank has just extended you all of the credit that they're comfortable doing. But like Emily said, sometimes you can just call and ask them, oh, hey, if I move $3,000 from this existing line of credit to this account, can you get the account opened? And a lot of times that works. And some some banks also have uh, added that into the application process. I know Chase does. In some cases, you know, as a part of the application thing, they'll just tell you and you'll be able to do it right there as a, a second step on the application. They'll basically say, hey, is it okay if we move over, I don't know, $5,000 from your freedom card to get you approved for this one? And and that's all it takes. So that that's even beneficial because it saves you the responsibility of having to make a call. Yeah, they got tired of us uh, sending to me <laughs> recon calls their way. Three times immediately. <laughs> uh, yeah, similar to you, Emily, my last recon call was for Chase Inc. as a part of the 90K uh, offer. And, and yeah, I just had to reallocate some credit. Um, I mean, I have a decent number of cards with Chase, so it's not surprising that I, I don't get like an instant approval anymore. But most of the time, yeah, I just have to call in to kind of shift around credit and have a pretty good track record. I've had a few recon calls where I've not been able to, to sell myself, I guess you would say, into an approval, but generally it's a pretty good success rate. How I like to encourage people to think about recon calls is the automatic approval from a bank is only when they're 100% sure they want to give you the card. A lot of times they might be 95, 96, 99% ready to approve you. But because there was one little thing, it didn't automatically do it. So calling and talking to a person, which as a millennial, I hate doing. Um, <laughs> you don't like talking but, to us, Travis? No, no. You especially, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard to talk on the phone when you're eating avocado toast after all. <laughs> yeah, with your your Starbucks in one hand as well. A lot of times it's just something small that for some reason you didn't make it through an automatic underwriting process. but through the manual review process, um, you can. And you're only going to get into that manual review process, unfortunately, by calling and talking to someone. I feel like this is a good time, too, to, to emphasize to folks that you should not look for meaning in approval times. If you apply for a card and you're instantly approved, and then you know your partner right next to you applies for a card and it says, you know, thanks for applying, we'll get back to you soon, that does not mean anything. That doesn't mean that instant approval has better credit. That doesn't mean that the second one's going to get declined. Like. We get so many people who get bent out of shape because they weren't instantly approved for a card. A lot of times it can be for, for reasons like Travis mentioned earlier. Maybe they can't verify your address because you've recently moved. It's just minor things. Just don't look for meaning in that. I've done a lot of recon calls over the years. I feel like I'm, I'm very comfortable with them. It's a part of our hobby. It's something that once you do it once, it, it truly does feel a lot easier than you think it was going to be. But that first time is a little bit scary. I just thought of a new service we can offer. Just pay us and we'll recon call for you. <laughs> oh, boom. <laughs> Well, we could we'll do it on a podcast in real time. We could use, we <laughs> yeah. could use chat GPT, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. If you are you know, playing this game with a partner in what's called two-player mode, which I think we're going to talk about later in this episode, and maybe someone's not comfortable making reconsideration calls, that's totally understandable. I've seen many situations where you can do kind of a joint reconsideration call. You put it on speaker, you have the actual, like the applicant there with you. But many times a bank will allow someone else to kind of speak on their behalf as long as the applicant verifies who they are on the phone and then gives verbal permission for someone to speak on their behalf, 
which means we could actually start a hotline where, you know, <laughs> call up Travis, the recon expert, and, uh, you know, he'll speak on your behalf. This is going to be great. You do not want me to speak on your behalf. Boom. Travis's cell phone number is definitely going to be in the show notes. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, that's an Don't important, that's an important note. I do that regularly. Uh, like with my wife, Ashley, she'll, she'll make the initial call, you know, go through the quick steps to identify herself and, and pass all those checks and then just say, Hey, my husband's going to chat with you or whatever. And they sort of verify that and then good to go. Yep. I do that as well. So that's recon calls. Basically, if you get declined for an application, don't take it personally. It's totally part of the hobby and go and see if you can appeal that via recon call and ultimately get that card approved. It's way less scary than it sounds. Next up, the Chase 524 rule. This is one of the most common issues that's discussed in points and miles. And it's also one that doesn't stick for a lot of folks the first time they hear it. So we're going to do our best to kind of walk you through how this works. The Chase 524 rule is kind of an unwritten rule, if you will, that basically states that anyone who has opened five or more personal credit cards with any bank in the last 24 months is likely not going to be approved for a new card with Chase. And I say that this is an unwritten rule as far as I know, Chase has never acknowledged this rule. You can't find it like written anywhere on their website or, or in the card terms. Again, as far as I know, I, I could be wrong on that. But it is one that is widely known throughout the points and miles community. Uh, now, an important note, I want to emphasize this. This applies to all credit cards, not just the ones open or issued by Chase. You know, if you open two cards with American Express, two cards with Citi, and one card with Capital One, all within a period of 24 months, you are over 524 even though you have never opened a Chase card before in your life. I think that this rule will really stick or it becomes more intuitive when you kind of think about it from Chase's perspective. Chase seems to be saying, hey, we don't want to be issuing cards to people who are opening a lot of them in a short period of time. So if that is you, even if those cards aren't with us, we don't want to give you new credit. Now, the, this, the 524 rule is like 99.9% firm in my experience. You will see like a handful of like very fringe exceptions to this where someone is able to get approved for a Chase card while over 524. But do know that those are exceptionally rare, even though you'll see those rumors circulate throughout our points and miles ecosystem pretty frequently. This rule is about as firm as they come. A now, quick I interjection, if I may. If you are struggling with tallying up your 524 count, uh, a little bit of self-promotion. You can just simply sign up for a My10X account and we handle uh, your account for you so long as you've loaded in all your cards and stuff uh, accurately. So we do all the hard work for you. Bingo. Yep, this is fun because as we're recording this, that has not publicly launched yet and it's kind of like hush-hush around here, but it feels kind of neat to like talk about it openly and something that will be published when it is widely available. So 524 rule, one more wrinkle here is that that 524 count also counts cards in which you are an authorized user. This is because authorized user cards often get reported to your credit report. So from the bank perspective, it looks like it's your card. So it does add to your 524 status. Now, this can be defeated with one of those recon calls we just talked about by just asking the bank or, or really informing them, hey, I'm simply an authorized user on this card. Here's the key line to say, say, I am not financially responsible for this card. And then that will tend to get Chase to say, oh, okay, yep, that doesn't count toward the five. So 524, just new cards. And again, personal cards with any bank, not just Chase. Product changes, which when you're upgrading or downgrading existing card, do not have an impact on 524. It only counts new accounts that are opened, or again, the authorized user accounts that you're added to. Business cards, which we're going to talk about here also in a moment, generally do not add to your 524 account, some rare exceptions, because they also do not show up on your personal credit report. However, if you want to be approved for a business card with Chase, you still have to be under 524, even though it won't add to your account. So again, to kind of emphasize this, because this is a common sticking point, if you are, say, at three cards in the last 24 months, we'd call that 324, and you apply for a business card, even a Chase business card, and are approved, you're still 324. It doesn't add to your account. But if you're at six or 724, you're over and you go to apply for a business card with Chase, even though that business card is not going to show up in your personal report, you're still going to be declined for being over 524. It's just a velocity rule. So in typical 10x travel fashion, we have an analogy to help you understand this rule. Think of 524 almost as if it's like the legal blood alcohol limit to drive. Its purpose is to limit the amount of cards you get in a specific time frame. Each new personal card is like having a drink, right? It adds to your 524 count, or in this analogy, your blood alcohol content. If you open too many cards too quickly, you'll be over the limit with Chase. And the only way to sober up in this analogy 
is to just let time pass. Closing cards does not help any more than throwing away empty beer bottles would make your blood alcohol content go down. All that matters is the opening of a card. And that's generally how the 524 rule looks. So why does this rule matter? Well, it greatly impacts card strategy. The first thing there is that it effectively creates a situation where you should prioritize chase cards first uh, while you're presumably under 524 and early in this hobby. Because you can get chase cards first and other cards later. But if you get other cards first, that makes it harder to get chase cards later because of that 524 rule. So because of this, you should consider getting cards issued by chase before moving on to other issuers. So in a sentence, my recommendation for your 524 strategy is this. Open the high value chase cards first, keep many of them forever, and then consider moving on to cards with other banks once you are over 524. Yeah, I, first of all, I'll give Bryce a quick chance to breathe. Um. <laughs> <sighs> I have I, said more than five words in 24 <laughs> seconds, so I'm over 524. Sorry, thank you. I see this something that people struggle with a lot. And... They think, well, there's these other great cards out there. You know, I really want this card. And I encourage people to think about it in terms of the opportunity cost. If you choose to open another card with another bank that does count towards your 524, you're reducing the number of chase cards that you can get. So now instead of being able to get, let's say, five chase cards with bonuses of 50,000 points for the sake of math, where you could get 250,000 points from Chase. As soon as you hit that 524, you can't get any more for a while. And so if you choose to replace one of those with another card, now you're completely cutting yourself off from, from another 50,000 point bonus. So now you can only get 200,000 points from Chase. You do two other bank cards, you can only get 150,000. But once you finish getting all 250,000 from Chase, if you do all with Chase from the start, you can still get those other cards later. So you're not closing any door by going with Chase first. Now, sure, those other cards might have really good bonus that's a little higher than normal, but usually a higher than normal bonus is only 20 or 30,000 points. So by, by following the Chase 524 and starting with Chase, it simplifies it to where you're not being distracted by cards that typically have high offers, like Hilton cards tend to have very high offers, but the points aren't necessarily as valuable. And it kind of simplifies, like outside of the opportunity cost, it simplifies the thinking. Because if you're new to points and miles, you might not know yet how to evaluate other card offers and how to decide when you should go for other cards. You might also not know yet how fast you're going to go eventually. You know, some people only open two or three cards a year. I'd say if most, most people only open. Yeah. yeah. Which if that's you, you can start to deviate to other cards a little bit, but this is all information that you don't know yet. And so what, like why we really recommend this as a strategy is because it's safest in terms of opportunity costs. It eliminates your need to consider a lot of other cards, especially when you don't have the knowledge of how to value those. This is all information you'll get over time the longer that you're involved in this, but it simplifies it for you if you're you're someone who's new to all of this. Yeah, and taking it like a step further on the simplification, like we rank all these cards on our website. We have a best cards list. And I think what we see a lot of times is when people come in new, they're almost like offended that like the Capital One card isn't ranked with Chase cards. But it's really all about this strategy. We're not saying like Capital One Venture is not as good as Chase. It's just we don't want you to miss out on the opportunity cost that Travis is talking about because you can always get the Capital One card later. So again, you know, what we've kind of been saying is like, don't think, take things personally in this hobby. <laughs> Yep. And to quickly tie that back to the what we just talked about, the recon calls, if you do get declined due to the 524 rule, I don't know the exact verbiage on the letter, but it's usually something like too many accounts opened within the last 24 months. And again, even if you like ask Chase directly, like, is this the 524 rule? Like they probably won't acknowledge that or like, you know, they won't know what you're talking about. That's what that means. And that's one of the few denial reasons where it's, it's probably not even worth making a recon call. Because again, there, there's really no exceptions to this. We, we find... We tell this to people and then usually it's followed up with like a, but I've been banking with them for years or, but I have super high income. Like there's no buts, at least in my experience, they, they generally, they're just not going to allow that. The 
The only yeah. caveat to that would be if you are an authorized user on on certain cards and you are on top of your 524 count and know that, hey, I'm only at 324, but they're saying I'm at 624 because I'm on my you know partner's cards as an authorized user. So still make a recon call in that situation. Yeah. And keep in mind that your 524 count doesn't start once you get into points and miles. Like this is something that you're past credit card history over the past two years, if you're brand new to this, is going to count towards. And that's what we see a lot of is people will say, oh, well, I'm 324, but I was denied. And we ask, oh, well, what cards What cards do you have over the past two years? And they're like, well, I've got these three cards from Chase, but then I've got a JCPenney store card and a Home Depot card and a Lowe's card. All of those cards count. Like Even if they're not points and miles card, any personal credit card that you have counts. And sometimes people kind of forget about those because they look at it as, oh, I'm starting in points and miles, so I'm starting from scratch. But all those past cards over the past 24 months from when you start in points and miles, those count as well. And sometimes they they don't even necessarily feel like cards, if you will. Like you go to you know, a furniture store, you buy a new dining room table and they ask if you want to finance it 0% over 24 months. You know, a lot of people just impulsively say yes. Underlying that offer, that is a credit card that they're giving you. And many yeah. times that will count towards your 524 status. I, I had a motorcycle I bought once on financing and the financing was a credit card. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that one shocked me once I kind of got into points and miles and realized that. I mean, you know, it had a low promote, low interest rate on it because otherwise that would be crazy. But once I realized that that was a credit card to buy a vehicle was absurd. Same for me on the uh, first car I bought out of college. It was like just through a bank and it was uh, a credit card essentially. Sneaky. Yeah. So yeah. now, of course, my mind race is like, hmm, how could I have better taken advantage of that? Maybe <laughs> somehow use my own credit card instead of their issued one? You know, I don't know, something. Yep. And just to kind of to wrap up 524, I, I do, I want to mention that a lot of this is, it, this is unofficial stuff with Chase. Like we are not in any way making claims about their approval process or like formal policy. This is just a lot of trial and error and things that we've kind of learned in the points and miles hobby. So please don't misinterpret us as kind of speaking on behalf of Chase or trying to, you know, tell you official policies. This is just best practice based on what we have seen. So that's the 524 rule. Again, covered more in the course or make your life easy. Sign up for our My 10X tool, which will calculate your 524 for you. And then you can be certain. Moving on, next topic in advanced strategies is business credit cards. Here's kind of the high level of how most people think about business credit cards before coming into the points and miles hobby. Ready? This is super complex. Business cards? I don't have a business. I can't get one of those. And that's it. And they just completely write them off. But there's some nuance here. What we find is that a lot more people can get approved for business credit cards than think initially they can get approved for business credit cards. Let me be very clear at first, though. This doesn't work for anyone. We're not saying, ah... Anyone can open a business credit card. You know, you own a business and you own a business like Oprah style. That's not how it works. But getting approved for a business credit card is generally easier than most people think. So in order to qualify for a business credit card, the generally accepted rule is that you need to be engaging in some sort of activity with the intent to make a profit. And again, keyword here is intent. There's plenty of businesses out there that don't make profit, right? If we followed that rule to the letter of the law, then WeWork would not be able to get business credit cards. Some of them are literally called nonprofits. Yes. <laughs> yes. And Jamie too. Diamond's the WeWork personal banker. If, if you oh, uh, yeah. saw the I, that, WeWork document or the uh, Apple TV one. I think it's, yeah, Apple HBO, one of those. It's worth one a watch, them, yeah. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but there are plenty of startups, independent contractors, self employed folks who can get approved for business credit cards. You know, even regular people with side hustles can get approved. Things like driving for Uber or like delivering for Uber Eats managing rental properties, babysitting, selling things online, all of these things can help you qualify for a business credit card. Generally speaking, like if there is some sort of like revenue coming in the door, that's not like a W-2 day job type salary, you can probably qualify for business credit cards. There's not like a great, you know, black and white distinction. Like, yes, you can definitely qualify. No, you can't. There's a lot of gray area here. But I often tell people if there's, if there's money coming in the door, that would be like 1099 or like side hustle type of money you can qualify for business credit cards. I, I can't tell you how many folks reach out to us and they're like, oh man, I really want to uh, you know, get a business credit card. I don't have a business. I do have five rental properties and I like flip antiques online. 
and I consult on the weekends, but I don't have a business. Like, yes, no, you absolutely have a business from a business credit card standpoint. So just try to have an open mind. Don't write these off immediately because they can play a huge part in the points and miles game. Now, if you can qualify for business cards, you effectively double your ability to earn points and miles because most major credit cards have both a personal and a business version. And as far as I know, at least as the time recording, there's no restriction by any bank that goes from personal to business cards. Like if you have personal card A and you want to get business card A, that's not restricted. In fact, many banks promote that heavily. You earn the same points for your personal spend and business spend. A lot of times you can manage it in the same account. It keeps things nice and easy. Now, business cards do come with a bunch of nuance, a lot of rules, like a, a, a lot of getting into the weeds, if you will. So I guess we'd say we, we highly recommend that you check out chapter 25 of our course, maybe the most referenced chapter ever, because it talks all about how to qualify for business cards, how to complete the applications, all the kind of nuance and rules to be aware of. I will tell you that if you, if you just kind of try to go at business cards by yourself with only listening to this podcast, there's a, a high chance you're going to make some sort of mistake. Give uh, chapter 25 a look. A couple things I would do want to note about business cards. First thing, instant approvals are very rare, incredibly rare. Oftentimes, it'll take two to four weeks before you hear back. It'll take longer than most personal cards. That does, again, there's no meaning in approval time. If you aren't approved right now, you do know how to do recon calls. That, that also works for business cards. Business cards have no impact on your taxes. There's like no connection to the IRS whatsoever. I think a common assumption is, oh no, like I used my business card on accident to buy a Chipotle lunch on my day off and now I'm going to jail. Like that's not how it works. You know, you can, I'm not giving tax advice. I'm not an accountant. You can choose to write off whatever purchase you want on whatever card you put it on. But using a business card does not directly imply this is a write-off. Nor does it uh, directly require any sort of additional reporting like on your tax return. I think some people also have a sort of mindset that I'm not going to open a business card because then I have to fill out requisite form 82-7, you know, on my tax return this year because I have that card. And that's not necessarily the case either. Precisely. Yep. Points earned from business cards are always tied to the individual or a human who opened the card. Businesses generally cannot accrue points. So even if you, you know, you own a business, you open a card for the business, like, hey, that card earns United Miles and I'm earning United Miles personally too. Those all go into the, the United account, the loyalty account of the person who opened the business card. Last thing to know, you are personally liable for any charges made on your business card. It's still your debt, not the businesses. So if you, you know, want to engage in some sort of complex scheme where you think you can run up a bunch of debt on business cards and, oh, that's in the business's name, not mine. Therefore, I can skate on this. Not how it works. And most importantly, all of the regular card opening strategies still apply to business cards. You still need to be selective about which ones you choose to apply for. You know, they're still there in our rankings on the best cards page. Take a look at those. Of course, if you, if you can't qualify for business cards, you know, you certainly can't after reviewing our material. Skip over those, of course. But they generally just fit into the same strategy for points and miles as any other card. So before we move on, I want to open up the group to talk about how you can potentially use business cards as a cooling off strategy with regard to the 524 rule. Anyone want to take a stab at how you've done that or how it's worked for you? Yeah, so I've used business cards um, to what you'll hear us say, like Bryce mentioned, cool off my 524. What that means was like, maybe I had opened eight personal cards in the last 24 months. And for whatever reason, I wanted to be able to open some chase cards again. So since most business cards don't report onto your personal credit, by shifting and opening business cards for my business, I was able to not have new cards count towards my 524. So over time, I went from eight to seven to six to five to four. And surprise, now I'm under 524 and eligible for chase cards again. And it can happen a little faster than you think as well. Cause like what you have to consider is those that like 824 that happened over time. You know, that wasn't all one month before I opened these business cards. So really it only took like maybe like six to eight months to get back below 524, but it let me continue to earn points from welcome offers on cards in the meantime. Yeah. Business, another huge advantage of business cards is, is that the spending categories tend to line up well with businesses, right? That's what they're designed to do. A lot of them have great earnings on things like advertising spend or office supplies and shipping and like things that businesses spend quite a bit of money on. And then one other quick feature of those I want to mention that that's important to note is that 
we keep talking about how business cards don't report to your personal credit. They don't add to your 524. That's not like a loophole or like an accident. That's deliberate. The, the reason that exists is because if you're running a business that has a high amount of spend on a monthly basis, if that were to report to your personal credit and then you go to apply for like a mortgage or a car loan or something and they're like, hey, Bryce, we see that you have you know $200,000 of outstanding credit card bills. What's going on? They're like, oh, it's just my business, right? Well, no, they're going to count that toward you know your personal financial situation. It might make it hard to get approved for loans. Business cards effectively shield you from that by not reporting your personal credit. That's why they don't add to 524. However, they do still pull your personal credit when you apply. Yeah. We get a lot of folks who are like, wait a second, I applied for a business credit card. I got a personal inquiry. I thought they don't report to personal credit. These are two different things. Yeah. Uh, and to, to be clear, like just because business cards don't report to your personal credit doesn't mean that that's something to be abused and to like max them out and be like, oh, well, you know, I can just fully max out the balance on these because it's not going to report on my credit and not hurt me. No, it's going to hurt you because you're going to pay a lot of interest on it. You know, you still have to use them responsibly, just like if you're using personal cards responsibly. Absolutely. I think the biggest thing for people is to, you know, as you start to add business cards uh, would be to make sure that you track your accounting, obviously, effectively. It's probably not advised, but if you're mixing sort of personal usage with business usage, you need to kind of keep track of that. Not necessarily from like Amex or Chase or Capital One perspective, but more so for like year-end, your own reporting. That can be uh, troublesome at the end of the year if you're not sort of being proactive about it. One thing you should sort of consider, depending on your business structure and sort of entity setup would be uh, the, the concept of commingling or of, um, yeah, commingling of funds. There have been like, I think some court cases for, you know, people were using corporate cards for personal usage and they basically uh, determined that they had pierced the corporate veil and were no longer protected for some of the protections you get from like LLCs or corporations or some of these other sort of business entities. So not to like scare you or, or anything <laughs> like that, but like, you know, depending on your situation, keep that in mind as well. So. It's also in the terms and conditions of virtually every business card I've ever seen. It does state like, you know, part of using this product is that you use this for business purposes only. And let me be very clear. That's terms and conditions from the bank. That's not law. You're, again, you're not going to go to jail if you use your business card to accidentally buy Chipotle for lunch one day. But you also can't expect to, hey, I can just open business cards and just use them like personal cards. That The bank's terms and conditions do prevent that. Yeah. And... Obviously, none of us are lawyers or accountants, so don't take any of this as like legal or accounting advice. Really, like if you have a, the majority of your income comes from a business and you've already got an accountant and an attorney for your business, definitely feel free to consult with them on how to integrate business cards in um, and how best to protect your business. Because that's not our specialty. None of us are licensed to do that. And so be sure to consult your your experts who are already in your corner. Yeah. The only other thing I would add is just from like a record keeping, like keeping track of all your cards, if you're going to dip your toe into business cards, is that a lot of times you'll need like a separate login to view like your statements for the business card. And you can link these often like between Chase and like if you have Chase personal cards and Chase business cards, you can link your accounts. But some banks don't do that. Like I think City is one of them where I have to log out from my city account for my personal cards and log in for my business account. So just make sure you're staying on top of that so you don't miss any payments or anything like that. Yep. So just to kind of put a bow on all things business cards, very much like recon calls that we talked about earlier in the episode. Sounds very intimidating at first. If you're into points and miles, most people just assume, oh, this isn't something I'm going to encounter. Or like I, you know, I don't have a public company, therefore I can't get a business card. I assure you, once you get going through it, you'll find it's easier and less intimidating than you think. Best thing you could do would be check out chapter 25 of our course. And if you think that you might qualify, give it a shot. Best way to, to learn is to do. One more topic we want to cover today on advanced point earning strategies. Uh, let's talk about non-public offers or also called targeted offers. We've talked on previous episodes about how credit card sign-up bonuses are really by far the, the fastest and easiest way to earn points and miles in bulk. Most cards are going to give 40, upwards 80,000, you know, sometimes over 100,000 points when signing up. And most credit card offers are generally available to anyone. If you have an internet connection, you can, you know, Google it, you can apply for that card. However, there is another layer of card offers that are somewhat hidden from the general public that tend to be more lucrative than the offers you'd see just available for anyone. 
One kind of this type of offer is called a targeted offer. These are offers that are only sent to like select groups of people that the, the bank presumably really wants to do business with. And they're essentially this uh, a marketing tool for credit card companies to give offers that are, you know, 25%, sometimes upwards of 50% better than the public offers on the same cards. Again, to be clear, these are not like cards that no one else can get with the exception, I guess, of like the Amex black card, if that even exists. These are the same products that you'd see publicly available, but many times with more lucrative offers that come via targeted. They often show up via email or direct mail. Sometimes they're great offers, but please don't make the mistake of assuming that now everything you get in the mail or email is like a special targeted offer. Like in my experience, I'd say 85 to 90% of the inbound card offers you get are not great, but you do want to keep an eye out in case you get a particularly good offer via mail or email. And there's really not a great way to access these if you're not part of the targeted group. Uh, it's not like you can just you know open an incognito browser and boom, all the targeted offers appear on Google. But there are some situations where you can ask a bank or card issuer to match a target offer that you might have seen someone else get. One thing I'd add that we've seen happening is be cautious if you get a targeted offer, though. Um, and what I mean by that is... Sometimes you'll get an offer that says special for you, and it's the exact same as the public offer that's out there. They're just acting like it actually is special offer when really anyone could get it. And people people fall victim to this, you know? Um, they They think that they're getting a special offer, so they go and apply for it, when in reality it wasn't any better than what they could get elsewhere. Yeah, I feel like we need to give a, a hat tip to our, our Facebook community manager, Megan, for uh, coming up with a great slogan, if you will, for that situation. She calls it shiny object syndrome. When you get like a, what would normally just be like a middle of the road credit card offer, but because it's got like metallic letters that say like special invitation for, you know, Matt or Emily or like exclusive offer for Travis, people, something in their brain just turns off and the rationality goes out the window. And I feel like I just got a special letter from a bank for this card. Be very careful. Like I said, 85 to 90% of the inbound offers are, are exactly that. But have any of you received like a killer targeted offer lately? Or, you know, what, what sorts of things are you looking out for when you check your mail or email for these things? I annoyingly had one this morning. Um, I was <laughs> oh. looking up something for an article on the Amex site and it said, oh, here's a 90,000 point offer for the American Express gold card. But if you leave this page, this might no longer be available. And they showed like some other cards at the top. So I was like, well, I've been kind of wanting this other card. Let me see if they'll give me something there. And they didn't. Then when I clicked back to the gold card, it was gone. They weren't lying. They were <laughs> not lying. I even tried like clicking back on my browser to get back to it. Nope. Even hitting the back button, it went went mm. right back to the the regular offer. If they were really aggressive, they should put like a timer in the top. Like when you're checking out from like Ticketmaster, it's like 15 minutes left on this offer. Better hurry, you know? <laughs> that would definitely yeah. be effective. <laughs> yeah, Sadly, seriously. yes. Banks, please don't do that. If you're <laughs> Someone beat you to this offer. Only four offers remaining. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, for me, Amex has just been kind of crazy, like in a post-COVID world, you know, whatever that means. But, you know, they're just actively trying to like gain more and more customers, it feels like. So they've been... Uh, throwing a lot of offers out. It's been pretty routine to where I'll log into my Amex account and see a 150,000 point offer on the business platinum card after $15,000 in spend in three months or 90,000 points in the business gold card after I think 10,000 on that one. See those pretty routinely, have jumped on a couple of them, which has been nice, but those are sort of targeted because their cards have already had before. But by using those offers that populate in my account, they they bypass the sort of eligibility requirements or exclusions since I've already applied for those cards and gotten the bonus on it before. I'm trying to think if I've gotten any other target offers over the years, but really it's just been the Amex. I regularly get fun target offers from the MasterCard Black Card, <laughs> which I do not even open. They're stalking you after you wrote that that uh, hit piece on them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hit, yeah, hit piece. Yeah, yeah. All right. We'll, we'll you mean slide. the finest, the <laughs> finest uh, written content that you've ever produced? Yes. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. Yes, um, that's entertaining. It is. Yeah. How about you, Emily? You, uh, w what's your approach to target offers? Have you seen any good ones lately? How do you think about that? I think I recently got one for like a one of the city um, American Airlines personal cards that was like maybe 5,000 points higher than the public offer. 
I didn't make a move on that one, but I did go for the business card instead. But in general, I think like uh, one other type of not necessarily targeted offer, or I guess it's kind of targeted, but a lot of times some some special people out there will have higher referral links, referral bonuses than the public offer. That happens a lot of times with the Amex cards, sometimes with the Chase cards too. So before you go and apply for just any old public offer, you might have like a friend who can get you 90,000 points rather than 60,000 points. There may be a few listeners here that cringe at the sound of when you were describing uh, elevated offers on American Airlines city issued credit cards. Yeah, we'll leave that one there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I do think one of the best things you can do when you get like a, an offer in the mail that you're actually curious about, like not one that you immediately throw away is just Google the name of the card and see what the public offer is. And if you see that the public offer on the internet is the same one that they just mailed you, try to reframe your thinking. That's not a targeted offer. That's an ad. By that logic, I got a targeted offer to save 15% by switching to Geico, right? This isn't special. Everyone can get that. So just try to get that shiny object syndrome out of your mind before you make kind of an impulsive bed move. So that's non-public target offers. Something to just keep, keep an eye out. Start watching your, your email. Start watching your mailbox. See if anything special comes across. But again, be very careful not to be impulsive and to assume that everything that comes is amazing because most of it is not. But as you kind of get an eye for it, you'll see that there are some great offers that do come across. So I think it's time to wrap up this episode. You can tell that we're really starting to build on the content we've shared in the previous episodes to let you in on some of the more advanced strategies and points and miles. But I want to remind you that nothing we've discussed here is so advanced or complicated that you can't tackle it. It's just stuff that requires a bit more context before you can start to understand it. If anything, recon calls are the scariest because you have to speak to someone on the phone and very few people like to do that, especially millennials, as we've talked about today. To remind you, all of what we talked about on today's episode is addressed in more detail in our free course, which is linked in the show notes or at 10xtravel.com course. So if you need an exact script as you approach your first recon call, or you're not sure how business cards work, or 524 strategy, you can find all of that there and more. If you're feeling like you can handle even more advanced knowledge, I would encourage you to join our Insiders Facebook group, 10X Travel Insiders. That's at facebook.com slash group slash 10X Travel and linked in the show notes. And take a peek at some of the amazing accomplishments from our readers, especially on the Fridays of each week when we have a Friday brag thread. For any other content you're looking for between episodes, head on over to our website, 10xtravel.com, where we post multiple articles per week. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. 